You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works Volume 220 by Rudolf Steiner, Twelve Lectures, entitled Awake for the Sake of the Future, translated by Jan W. Gates. This is Lecture 10, entitled Rising Beyond the Intellectual Fall of Humanity Through Inner Discipline. Materialistic Science Aligned with Medieval Thinking. Given in Dornach on January 26, 1923. In recent lectures I have spoken about the fall of the human being and the emerging human capacity to rise spiritually beyond the grasp of the fall. Within the general consciousness of humanity in the present era, this spiritual rising beyond the fall needs to be recognized as an ideal for human striving and willing. I have pointed out the aspect of the fall that has played into intellectual life during our time. When one speaks about the limits of the knowledge of nature today, it is based on the view that human beings no longer have the capacity to reach the spiritual, and neither should we strive to rise beyond the fall through the intuitive perception of the earthly. And I pointed out that when the limits to the knowledge of nature are spoken about today, It is merely a modern intellectual way of referring to the sinfulness of the human being, which was carried over from older periods of history, especially from the medieval era in Europe. Today, I want to indicate that humanity in our epoch cannot fulfill the true goal of earth evolution if we continue to hold these older views about knowledge and our intellectual development which are still accepted in the modern era. Popular consciousness today is deeply permeated by the historical legacy of the fall. Intellectualism has already degenerated so significantly that if our acceptance of it remains as it is now, we shall not be able to speak about goals for the future of humanity. Today it must be our highest priority to acknowledge that deep within the human soul there exist capacities with a potential that far exceeds what can even be imagined in popular consciousness. In order to understand the significance of the forces nascent in the human soul, we have to understand the nature of contemporary consciousness. Modern consciousness originated, on the one hand, out of a particular view of human thinking and, on the other hand, out of a specific notion about the human will. Human feeling lies in between these two and we observe our feeling whenever we perceive either human thinking or human willing. Human beings today use thinking to understand the full scope of the world of nature and the world of humanity, too at least as far as one uses the art of thinking in the way it is applied to the natural realm. 
human beings are taught to think in the way that thinking is applied to the natural sciences. We also examine social life with the kind of thinking we use today in the natural sciences. Many people believe that the thinking used in the study of nature is impartial and unprejudiced. We often hear about the absence of preconceptions in scientific investigations. But I have often emphasized that the presumed objectivity of science is not very advanced. The kind of thinking currently used by the scientist during scientific investigations, which is also the kind of thinking used by ordinary human beings to conduct their lives, is an outgrowth of a much earlier kind of thinking. Specifically, modern thinking has developed out of medieval European thinking. Moreover, what is said today by the critics of medieval thinking is itself a product of the method of thinking that emerged during the medieval era. An essential characteristic of medieval thinking that has carried over into contemporary thinking is the presumption that thinking can be observed only as it is applied to the phenomena of the natural world that the thinking process itself cannot be observed. And there is no basis for contemplating the scope or potential of human thinking. No notice is taken of the thinking process itself or of the inwardly living quality of thinking. Our lack of awareness of the living nature of thinking is a natural consequence of the observations that I have just presented. The thoughts that modern human beings have about nature are actually corpses of thoughts. When we reflect about the realm of nature, we are thinking dead thoughts, because the living aspect of these corpses of thoughts was present in the pre-earthly existence of the human being. The thoughts that we now develop about the natural world and also about human life are dead thoughts. However, these thoughts were once living thoughts in our pre-earthly existence. In our pre-earthly existence, before we descended into our physical earthly incarnation, the abstract dead thoughts which we develop on earth according to the custom of our time were living elemental beings. In pre-earthly existence we experienced these thoughts as living beings, just as we here on earth experience life within our own blood. Here during earth existence these thoughts die and become abstract. As long as we continue as we are today and use our thinking only to observe external nature, our thinking will focus on dead thoughts. As soon as we look within ourselves and allow what is living to reveal itself to us, then it also works further within us, albeit unconsciously in comparison to our ordinary consciousness. But the living aspect of thinking that was part of our pre-earthly existence reaches into us and continues to work within us. The forces of these living thoughts are those that we possess by virtue of the forming of our physical organism 
for our earthly incarnation. The forces of the living thoughts residing in our pre-earthly existence cause us to grow and form our internal organs. When, for example, theoreticians speak about thinking, they are speaking about dead thoughts. If they wish to speak about the true nature of thinking and not about dead thinking, they would have to acknowledge that they must look within themselves and in their innermost being take note that thinking is not something that begins at the birth or the conception of the human being. They would have to recognize that the inner activity of thinking is a continuation of a living, pre-earthly thinking. When we observe the very young child living in a dreamlike, sleepy state, parenthesis for the time being, I do not wish to speak about the child's life within the mother's womb, close parenthesis, and if we are able to understand what is really happening within the child, then we recognize that the living powers of pre-earthly existence are still active within. Then we can see that the very young child remains in a dreamy, sleepy existence for a time, and only later begins to have specific thoughts. That is actually so. For in the first period of life, in which the young child dozes dreamily, the entire organism is seized by thoughts. As the organism becomes more fully grounded in itself, thoughts no longer are held within the solid and watery aspects of the organism. Rather, thoughts find expression in the formative qualities of air and warmth. So, we can say that in the very young child, all four elements, earth, water, air and fire, are imbued with thoughts. During later development, thoughts are grasped by the formative elements of air and fire. As we mature, the power of thinking is brought into the fully developed breath and warmth-generating processes that permeate our body. Thus the power of thinking moves from the more solid aspects of the physical organism into the fleeting, lighter, airier parts of the body. That is how thinking obtained its independent element which accompanies us during our life between birth and death. When we are asleep, that is, when the power of thinking that is achieved on earth weakens and is less likely to be directed into the warmth and air of the physical organism, the pre-earthly power of thinking reasserts itself. Only after you go further and achieve a true contemplation of the inner self will it become clear to you what the true nature of thinking is. Theories of knowledge are nothing more than abstractions. When you really look closely at this process, you will have to acknowledge that if you examine closely the conceptual and thinking processes, pre-earthly existence will reveal itself everywhere you look. In contrast to what I have just described, medieval thinking, which still wields influence today, was forbidden to admit the possibility of pre-earthly existence. The pre-existence of the human being was declared to be heresy. After centuries of being required to deny pre-existence, humanity developed a habit 
of avoiding it. Think back to 1413 CE, when the modern human being was beginning to emerge. Humanity, in Western societies, had become accustomed to avoiding the possibility of pre-earthly existence. Indeed, they were basically disinclined to orient themselves to pre-earthly existence. If humanity had not been forbidden to think about a pre-earthly existence up until 1413, a very different development would have taken place. For example, then it would not have been just a possibility, but almost a certainty, that the Darwinism that appeared in 1858, which outwardly was based on the observation of development in the natural world, would have had a very different form if nature had been investigated through the prism of pre-earthly existence. If that had been the case, Darwin could have founded a natural science in the light of the pre-existence of the human being. Instead, humanity was disinclined to think about the possibility of pre-earthly existence, and there emerged a natural science in which the human being was regarded as the culmination of the animal kingdom. And so the view of the human being in a pre-earthly, individual life could not come forth, because the animal does not have a pre-earthly existence. Thus, out of the old perspective of the fall was born the prohibition against speaking of the pre-existence of the human being. And that was reinforced just as modern intellectualism was beginning to emerge. This is how it came about that natural science was the child of a misunderstood notion of the fall. We have a natural scientific tradition that is connected to the fall of humanity. That is, a natural science that emerged directly out of a misunderstanding of the fall. If this perception of natural science were to continue, then the earth itself would not be able to fulfill its true purpose. Humanity would develop a consciousness that is not connected to its divine spiritual origin. Instead, human consciousness would be separated from its divine spiritual origin. We have spoken concretely, rather than theoretically today, about the limits of knowledge of nature. We have indicated why, under the influence of modern intellectualism, humanity has sunk below the level that is within its capacity to reach. If we were to speak in the language used during the medieval period, we would have to say that natural science has, quote, gone to the devil, close quote. History speaks to us very clearly, just as natural science came forward with its brilliant results, which even today should not be disputed by me, People today who still have some understanding of the true nature of the human being see that natural science is also capable of leading human beings astray. What once caused fear and trembling, it glimmered faintly in Faust as he bid farewell to the Bible and turned to nature, is now the fear that human beings still approach the knowledge of nature under the sign of the fall, rather than from the prospect that they can rise beyond the fall through their own enlivened capacity for thinking. This matter goes much deeper than is usually presumed. 
When the medieval period was just beginning, traditional approaches to knowledge were already haunted by the fear that Faust's, quote, devilish poodle, close quote, was nipping at the heels of the investigator of nature. And yet now in the modern period, humanity simply dozes off and does not even bother to think about those things anymore. Contemporary indifference is not a trivial matter. It is not theoretical small talk to recognize the influence of the fall upon today's discussion of the limits of the knowledge of natural science. The unperceived residue in human thinking that denies the presence of the fall in modern ideas about intellectual and empirical areas of knowledge really exists. If this corrosive influence were not present, then we would not be taught the theory of animal and human development that is currently prevalent. That is, a horizontal sequence of development from fish to lower mammals to higher mammals and then to the human being. This is what is typically proposed as the line of development in animal and human evolution. And yet this does not accord with the facts of the matter. If you look closely at the developmental sequence, you will discover that it is not supported by actual observation. The research carried out in the natural sciences today is remarkable, but what the scientists say about the research is not correct. If scientists would grasp the meaning of what they observe, they would reverse the direction of the line of animal and human development to first human being, then higher mammals, then lower mammals, then fish. Parenthesis, with this, I am obviously leaving out some details. Close parenthesis. In this sequence, you go from a time in which developmental stages begin with the human being, proceeding through higher mammals, lower mammals, and fish, to a point of origin in which every animal is still spiritual. Here, you see that the human being is a direct descendant of higher spiritual beings and will continue to take on greater and greater similarities to higher spiritual beings. Likewise, the lower animal beings also have their origins from higher spirituality, but as lower beings, they have not assumed higher spiritual natures. We would have received accurate interpretations of these facts if the recognition of human pre-existence, that is, the acknowledgement of pre-earthly life, had not been suppressed. Thus other human modes of thinking could have been used, and a mind like Darwin's, who could have arrived at an accurate understanding of the evolutionary sequence, had to fall short of a correct interpretation because of a misguided habit of thinking rather than because of the results of his investigations. It also would have been possible to reach an accurate interpretation if Goethe's theory of metamorphosis had been extended correctly. I have always pointed out that Goethe got, in quotes, stuck in the development of his theory of metamorphosis. We just have to observe, objectively, how Goethe viewed the matter. With regard to plants, Goethe observed their development very carefully and arrived at his archetypal plant form, Urpflanze. But when it came to the human being, 
and he tried to articulate the metamorphosis of human bones, he felt stymied and simply could go no further. Take, for example, Goethe's brief notation about the morphology of the human skeleton. By examining a broken sheep's skull in Venice, it occurred to him that the skull was a transformed vertebra, but he never went any further than this. Elsewhere I drew attention to a note I found in Goethe's papers when I was working in the Goethe archive in Weimar. Goethe suggested that the human brain is a transformation of the ganglia in the spinal cord. Again, he took the matter no further. This sentence was written in pencil in one of his notebooks. One can see that Goethe had drawn a line through the latter part of the sentence. He was dissatisfied with what he had written and wanted to investigate further. Scientific research at that time was not sufficiently advanced to be helpful. In our day, research enables us to take a position on this question. Ever since the earliest studies of embryology, there has never been any indication that the form of the human skull could have arisen out of the vertebra. If you know the current state of embryology, it is clear that we cannot assume that the skull is a transformation of the vertebra. More recently, Gegenbauer has shown that the nature of the skull and the bones of the face are very different from the observations that were put forward by Goethe at that time. However, if we know that the present form of the skull leads back to the bones of the body in one's previous earthly incarnation, then we can understand the process of metamorphosis. Thus we are drawn into the presumption of repeated earth lives by means of outward morphology. That is in line with Goethe's teaching about metamorphosis in forms of life. It is impossible, however, that the line of development proposed by Darwin and still accepted by conventional science today will be altered in any way. The misunderstanding of the intellectual fall has corrupted and even ruined contemporary thinking. The situation is even more serious than we are willing to admit. We must have a clear idea about the way human consciousness has changed over time in order to see the things I have been speaking about in the proper light. We may, for example, say that something is beautiful. Now, ask a philosopher what beauty is. Certainly a philosopher should know something about beauty. And you will discover that the philosopher comes back with the most unbelievable abstractions. Beauty is a word that we use almost instinctively to describe what we feel. But today, no one has any idea what the Greeks in ancient times imagined when they spoke about beauty. We no longer understand that when an ancient Greek spoke about the cosmos, the word meant something very concrete. For us, cosmos, or world all, refers to a great jumble of meanings. We would just as soon not even talk about this today. For the ancient Greeks, the word cosmos encompassed beauty, elegance, grace, artistry. As soon as they spoke about the entire cosmos, they inevitably referred to its beauty. The cosmos meant not only the world all, 
it implied universal beauty in its natural lawfulness. All of that was implied in the use of the word cosmos. And when the ancient Greeks stood before a beautiful work of art, when when they wished to portray the human being in a work of art, how did they go about it? The ancient Greeks wished to make it beautiful. If you take the definitions of Plato, you get a sense for what the ancient Greeks tried to do when they portrayed the human being in a work of art. Expressing this in words, an ancient Greek would say, quote, On earth the human being is not the same as an ideal human being would be. Humanity originated in heaven. And I try to portray the human being so that we can see these heavenly origins. Close quote. The ancient Greek characterized the human being in a beautiful form, as if coming directly from heavenly origins, whereas the actual outer form of a human being would naturally appear quite differently. Human beings do not actually appear as if they had just fallen from heaven. Their forms carry everywhere the sign of Cain's fall from grace. That is the ancient Greek image. We are not able to follow this example in our time, for we have forgotten the connection between the human being and pre-earthly existence, that is, heavenly existence. We can say, however, that what the ancient Greeks called beauty was the revelation of the human being's significance in the heavenly realm. Thus the idea of beauty became concrete. With us, however, beauty is only an abstraction. There has been an interesting debate between two modern philosophers of aesthetics, Friedrich Theodor Fischer, a very intelligent man, who wrote a very important book on aesthetics in the context of our time, and the formalist, Robert Zimmermann, who wrote another work on aesthetics. Fischer defined beauty as the revelation of the idea, or ideal, in material form. Zimmermann defined beauty as the consistency or the harmony of the parts in relation to the whole form. Thus, for Fischer, the substance was the most important aspect, and for Zimmermann, the form took precedence over substance. When someone says that beauty is an idea that manifests itself in a material form, what does that tell you about an idea? First of all, you have to know what an idea is. Using the corpses of thoughts that people think are ideas today, this definition leads nowhere. But it meant something when an ancient Greek defined a beautiful human being by saying that a beautiful human being is one whose human form embodies the idealized form of one of the gods. A definition like this gives you something concrete that you can try to understand. It is important that we become aware that human consciousness and the constitution of the soul have changed over the course of time. In the modern era, people believe that the ancient Greeks thought in the same way that we do now. Histories of Greek philosophy written in the 19th and 20th centuries make this very clear. For example, the history of Greek philosophy, written by Edward Seller, is considered to be an outstanding scholarly work 
of the mid-19th century, and it is also highly respected in the 20th century. Zeller's History of Greek Philosophy gives us the impression that Plato never taught at the Platonic Academy. Rather, he had a chair in the Berlin University in the 19th century, just as Zeller himself did. As soon as we grasp thoughts concretely, we see how impossible it would have been for Plato to teach in a 19th century university such as the one in Berlin. Nevertheless, what Zeller carried over from Plato's work is translated into concepts of the 19th century, and its approach has no feeling for the necessity that we must go back and recapture the sole constitution of a different era if we really want to understand Plato. When we develop a consciousness for the way in which the soul constitution changes over time, then we shall not find it absurd to discover that with respect to our thinking today about nature and the human being, we have succumbed completely to an intellectual fall. And we must remember something that humanity rarely takes into consideration today, or indeed something people may think is a distorted idea. In today's theoretically oriented knowledge, a way of thinking that is accepted even in the remotest villages, something lives that can be redeemed only through Christ. We have to understand Christianity if we are to begin to grasp this. Now, If we expect that a modern scientist should understand that his thinking must be redeemed by Christ, then the scientist would shake his head and say, The deed of Christ may be responsible for many things that have occurred in the world, but to expect me to say that Christ can redeem natural science from an intellectual fall is not something that I can allow. Close quote. But even when theologians write natural scientific books, as has often occurred in the 19th and 20th centuries, one has written about ants, another about the brain, and so forth, these books also need to be written out of an understanding of a true Christology. The scientific books by theologians, incidentally, are often excellent, even better than those written by natural scientists because the theologians are able to write in a more accessible way. Nevertheless, today we need, especially in intellectual disciplines, a rising beyond, an overcoming of the prevailing widespread intellectual fall. Thus, we see that intellectualism has been contaminated through a misunderstood consciousness of an intellectual fall but not because a fall has actually occurred. Rather, out of a misunderstood consciousness of an intellectual fall. For a misunderstood consciousness of the fall necessitates placing Christ as a higher being in the middle point of the earth's development and from there finding our way beyond the influence of the intellectual fall. We also must discover a deeper understanding of human development in spiritual realms. When we look at medieval scholasticism in the way it is usually done today, even going back as far as Augustine, we cannot expect to gain much from this. It is likely to be unproductive, 
because we do not see anything beyond the observation that modern natural scientific consciousness has developed further over time. But that view ignores a higher overarching reality and perspective. I once gave a presentation in this hall about medieval scholasticism so that you could see all of the connections. In 1920, I gave a short cycle of lectures about Thomas Aquinas and spoke about the broader connections to his life. But it is painful to note that within our anthroposophic movement the implications of the lectures are not understood. The natural sciences today, brilliant as they are, are not receiving what they need to carry on further. And if forming the connection to scholasticism is not being pursued, then our anthroposophic research institutes, which have come into being through great sacrifices, will remain ineffective. The institutes themselves will have to utilize these insights in order to move forward and not fall prey to fruitless polemics about atomism. The natural sciences have come so far in establishing facts that they are striving to abandon the sterile modes of thinking that we see everywhere in natural scientific literature. We know enough about human anatomy and physiology, for example, that if we chose the right method of thinking, it would be possible to grasp the metamorphosis of the form of the head arising out of the form of the body in an earlier incarnation. But when we adhere to the material aspect alone, we cannot understand the body's relationship to an earlier life. People will only ask in a clever way, quote, well, then, we shall have to hold on to physical bones so that they can be transformed bit by bit in the grave, close quote. But the fact of the matter is that the material form is an outward form and that the formative forces are the ones that undergo metamorphosis. On the one hand, thinking has been shackled because pre-existence has been shrouded in darkness. On the other hand, knowledge about life after death can be achieved only through a knowledge that goes beyond sense experience. If a human being rejects the possibility of suprasensory knowledge, then life after death remains an article of faith, the credibility of which is dependent upon authority. A real understanding of thinking processes leads to pre-earthly life. If human beings are not prohibited to think in this way, post-existent life, however, can be known only through higher knowledge that is not bound to sense existence. For this you may use the methods that I have described entitled How to Know Higher Worlds, but this knowledge is rejected in the context of contemporary consciousness. And thus, two factors are working together. The continuing influence of the older prohibition to acknowledge the pre-existent life of the human being, and today's deep aversion to higher suprasensory knowledge. When we bring these two together, then anything to do with a suprasensory realm is assigned to the unknowable, that is, to the realm of belief. That means that the non-material can be only a matter of belief for Christendom and not a matter of knowledge. 
This situation will never permit any science that wishes to be credible as science to have anything to do with the being of Christ. And this is precisely the state of affairs that exists today. But I said at the beginning of today's observations that with regard to human consciousness, which today is filled with intellectualism, humanity has succumbed to an intellectual fall. And unless we rise beyond this condition, the purpose of the earth cannot be fulfilled. The current state of scientific investigation will not allow the earth to fulfill its destiny. But the integrity of the human being in the depths of the soul remains unbroken. When, out of the depths of our souls, we develop higher knowledge with regard to the Christ impulse, then we also shall rise beyond the fall that affects intellectualism today, which, if I may express it in this way, has succumbed to the sin of decadent intellectualism. First of all, it is necessary to understand that intellectual empirical research must be able to grasp what can be known through the spirituality of the cosmos. Science must be imbued with spirit. But this spirituality cannot reach the human being if research is limited to what exists in space or within the boundaries of sequential time. If we study the form of the human head with regard to the structure of bones, merely in comparison with the structure of other bones, such as cylindrical bones, vertebra, or ribs, we will not accomplish anything. We shall have to go beyond space and time in our concepts, just as we have done with regard to spiritual science so that we can grasp what happens as a human being moves from one earth existence to another. But we must also be clear that when we look at a human skull, it is possible to consider it a transformation of vertebra. However, what exists today in the human spinal column never transforms itself into a skull in the sphere of earth existence. It must first disintegrate and be transformed into the spiritual in order for vertebra to become skull bones in an individual's subsequent earth life. When an instinctively intuitive mind like Goethe's comes along, he recognizes that the form of the skull is the transformed vertebra. But in order to describe how a perception like this becomes a fact, you need spiritual science. Goethe's theory of metamorphosis becomes significant only in the context of spiritual science. That is the reason why Goethe, within his lifetime, remained dissatisfied with several of his observations. Likewise, only within the context of anthroposophic spiritual science is it possible to find the right relationship between intellectual fall and rising beyond the intellectual fall. Thus, anthroposophic knowledge is not just observation. It has the capacity to bring living substance into the course of human development. The end of Lecture 10